came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves. She sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. In a world that's changing rapidly, we are making a change to our podcast format so you'll keep getting a fresh astrophys every two weeks. We're splitting our content, so one episode each month will be dedicated to a new guest interview in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. Also each month, you will get your regular presenter, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, in a separate episode where who will preview a sky guide for you for the coming month. And he will also take you on an astronomical journey of discovery in Ian's Tangent. We are also starting each episode with a community service announcement. First of all, wash your hands very well and often and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through the coronavirus crisis. Also, climate change is real and accelerating, and we need to keep coal in the ground and urgently transition to renewable energy sources. See what you can do to influence your local politicians to develop planet-saving policies. Our special guest this time is Professor Melanie Johnston Hollett, who is the director of the Murchison Widefield Array and research professor based in Western Australia. So let's cross over to Perth right now. Hello, Melanie. Hello, Brendan. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Melanie Johnston Hollett. Director of the Murchison Widefield Array. Melanie manages large-scale multinational research infrastructure, regularly involved with international science diplomacy, and regularly gives advice and consultancy to governments. And her research specialises in radio astrophysics, telescope design, and scientific visualisation. Thanks for speaking with us, Melanie. Oh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. So before we look at your research and the MWA and the coming SKA, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Melanie, and how you were first drawn to the skies? So I grew up in northern Australia. I was born in Darwin, and then I moved to North Queensland for a little while, where I spent a lot of time with my grandmother in Townsville who used to take me outside and show me the night sky. So we used to sit on her back step and look at the sky and she would tell me things about the stars. And from that, I developed this sort of love of the night sky and wanted to understand more about it. And it was really 
the catalyst for me wanting to do astrophysics and I was extremely stubborn as a child and so I decided that was what I was going to do and that's what I did. So I lived in North Queensland until I was about four and then we moved back to Darwin and I was in Darwin um, until I was 11. So it was really sort of the skies that you see uh, in Northern Australia that, that drew me to astronomy initially. Cool. So perhaps you could tell us a little about those school days and your early ambitions and how those ambitions have evolved. Yeah, so it was interesting growing up in Darwin because it was a fairly multicultural place. So I think the most striking thing from my school when I look back on it now is just how diverse the kids were in my class. And so I, I never felt that I was an outsider or something different or special or anything until at 11, I moved to Adelaide and suddenly I was in a much more homogeneous environment. And I went to high school in Adelaide and it was there that you started to get a sense of being different or other, or that, you know, women didn't really do physics. And so I was stubborn. And so I continued to pursue physics, but I, have to admit I really hated high school with a passion so I sort of suffered through that to get to university to keep sort of pursuing the stream that I had to do to do astrophysics. Fantastic. So <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great. So after that successful school career your undergrad degree was in a BSc in experimental and theoretical physics immediately followed by a BSc honours in astrophysics which you did concurrently with your BSc in pure maths and computer science, and then you went straight on to complete your PhD in astronomy and astrophysics. On paper, that looks like a whirlwind. How did you drive that study and research trajectory? Yes, I wouldn't recommend to anybody to do what I did as an undergraduate, which is where I actually took a 40% overload to be able to do those degrees concurrently. So I don't think that's a good idea. Would never advise that to anybody else. It was driven, again, I'm stubborn. And I wanted to get to the PhD. That was where I was sort of aiming for. And the reason I did the second degree was simply that in order to be able to do as much physics as I wanted to do, and to understand physics, you have to do quite a lot of mathematics. And I was going to have to do sufficient mathematics to do a completely extra degree. So my major in my BSc Maths and Comp Sci is actually pure mathematics. And it was done in support of physics. Yeah, the PhD itself was just a straight up PhD, although I was very lucky to do it with the CSIRO. So I was a joint student of the CSIRO, Australia Telescope National Facility, and the University of Adelaide was the institution that granted my degree. So it was interesting because CSIRO's headquarters are actually based in Sydney, the University of Adelaide is obviously in South Australia, and so that was, I think, the start of my <laughs> heavy travel career. So I used to move back and forth between Adelaide and Sydney to be able to do my PhD. And during my PhD, I spent about three months every year overseas, either visiting other institutions or going to conferences or observing with telescopes. So, yeah, so, sort of a whirlwind, but it was good fun. I learned a lot. So it was certainly something I look back on fondly now. Yeah, and I get a lot of people talking about the fun they've had, so that's great. And 
Then your PhD was detection of magnetic fields and diffuse radio emission from ABAL 3667 and other rich southern clusters of galaxy. And I found a copy of it online and you used data from some great instruments and you acknowledged some wonderful advisors and supervisors. Tell us about these supervisors and I presume that the workload was enormous? Well, if I look at the workload now, in retrospect, it seems a doddle, like no worries, all good. My, my workload now is considerably higher. You know, when you're a PhD student, you have to learn to handle the research workload and to juggle different things and so I guess at the time I would have said the workload was reasonable but it was fun I mean the thing is as I said I got to work with people all over the world and visit places and cultures that I had not experienced in detail before and so I don't think the work was particularly onerous in the context of the stuff I was getting to do. I mean, probably the hardest thing about it was that my then partner was also a PhD student and in Adelaide. And so I would be, you know, sitting on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley, writing up my PhD thesis. So I, I was there for three months and he was on the other side of the world. And this is before we had things like FaceTime and so forth. And so that was a little bit difficult. But yeah, it was mostly fun. And as for my supervisors, they were really interesting people who taught me very different things. So my principal PhD supervisor was Professor Ron Eakers, who oh. is, yeah, you know Ron. <laughs> I, I know of him, yes. Yeah, everybody knows Ron. So, so Ron, of course, is an internationally prominent radio astronomer, former director of the Very Large Array um, in the United States, and founding director of the Australia Telescope, which is now the Australia Telescope Compact Array plus Parks, and former president of the International Astronomical Union. So Ron's a really interesting person, and I had the great privilege to work with him and learn from him. And so it wasn't just radio astronomy that I learned from Ron. It was all sorts of stuff around science diplomacy, how international astrophysics is done, Things I didn't go into a PhD expecting to learn, but did get to learn anyway. So that was good. My other supervisor was Dick Hunstead from the University of Sydney, who, yep. yeah, unfortunately recently passed away. Yep. But Dick was a really interesting counterpoint to Ron. So Ron's super excited about things and wants to do things which are really difficult and on the bleeding edge. And Dick always wanted to make sure that everything was correct and that things were properly described, if I, if I put it that way. So he's famous for what he, if his students refer to as his green pens. So he used to go through your manuscripts and correct them with different coloured pens, worrying about you know, the content and the grammar and, and making sure that the, the astrophysics was, was correct. So it was, it was interesting having the two of them. So there was often sort of periods where I would get conflicting advice from them on a particular thing and... As an early PhD student, that's a bit distressing. But by the time you get to the end, it's like, well, this is my PhD. So I will decide what I'm going to do with this advice and, and how I'm going to take that forward. So, yeah, so I was really lucky to work with Dick and Ron and learn from them and then take some of their wisdom and hopefully pass it on to my own students. So Ron actually was recently here in Western Australia where he got to interact with my students and members of my research team. And so that was really cool to see Ron sort of 
asking them questions which they had answers to because I taught them. So, yeah, good. <laughs> uh, that sounds like the full circle. That's fantastic, Melanie. Now, the astrophysics itself, can you tell us about your PhD research and what you learnt about ABEL 3667 and the other southern galaxy clusters? Yeah, so the original idea for my PhD was to try and look for magnetic fields in galaxy clusters. So at the time, we were trying to understand whether or not galaxy clusters had magnetic fields. So just sort of to back it up for a bit. So a galaxy cluster is a collection of several hundred to maybe a thousand galaxies all bound around a particular gravitational centre and they sit in a hot plasma. And so the question was, did magnetic fields infuse that plasma in between the galaxies which are members of the cluster? And the way that we try and detect magnetic fields in the universe is with radio telescopes for anything that's further away than, say, in our galaxy. Yep. And so Ron had this idea that what we could do was look for rotation measures, which is particular polarisation signal where your plane of polarised light rotates at a different rate depending on the magnetic field of the electron density of the medium that it passes through as a function of frequency. And so you can detect this and then if you know what your electron density is, you can work out what your magnetic field, average magnetic field is along the line of sight. And so Ron thought, well, what we'll do is we'll look for rotation measures for background objects sitting behind the galaxy clusters and use that to try and determine whether or not there are magnetic fields in clusters. Now, at the time, that was extremely difficult to do with the radio telescopes that we had available to us. And so I ended up taking a huge amount of data trying to look for suitable background sources, which then had suitable polarization characteristics across four or five different frequencies to be able to get the signal that we wanted. And so I ended up with, I think, nine data points after three years of observing. And so, yes, there was evidence that there are magnetic fields in galaxy clusters, but it was a really, really challenging project. And I look back at it now and see how far we've advanced with current radio telescopes and how much more sensitive and easier it is to get the background sources and, and how you know, the field has changed statistically and sort of think, wow, why did, I, why did I go through that? Because now we can do it really easily because we've got better telescopes. But I learned a lot. I learned an enormous amount about how to calibrate your instruments how to understand the limits of what you can do with a telescope and um, how to drive forward really cutting-edge research. So, yes, we detected statistical evidence of magnetic fields in galaxy clusters. That was part of my project. But yeah. the other thing that happened was that in the course of selecting these galaxy clusters, one of them was ABEL 3667, and that particular object has what we call radio relics. So it has two enormous regions of diffuse radio emission, which is the result of shock waves, which have gone out in the universe from two galaxy clusters colliding together. So in the case of A3667, we actually think that there's been a cluster of around 300 galaxies and a cluster of around 150 galaxies smash into each other about a giga year ago. And then it releases enormous amounts of energy, two huge shock waves. Um, they compress the magnetic fields in the cluster and then electrons in the cluster also spiral around those compressed magnetic fields as the shock wave moves out 
and produce radio emission. And so that's what I had seen. And so a large part of my project then pivoted to talk about the physics of A3667 and how you generate these so-called radio relics, how they relate to the dynamical history of galaxy clusters. And I then looked at a few other clusters as well with a very large array in the US. And so the back of my thesis sort of talks about one more example of that. So it pivoted into something more interesting, I think, and, and serendipitous. The other thing that I did in my PhD, which I'm still sort of doing now and has sort of driven my career interests again around trying to understand magnetic fields in the universe was that if you try to understand the magnetic field in a galaxy cluster, you have to remove foregrounds. And so the magnetic field of the Milky Way is one of the largest foregrounds you have to worry about. And so I ended up making a map of the magnetic field of the Milky Way using the available data, which again, at the time was a hell of a job. So I ended up with, I think, 800 data points across the whole sky yep. to then try and make a map yeah, of the magnetic field of the Milky Way. And then about eight years ago, we redid it with, again, the available data, which was about 42,000 points <laughs> and started to see detailed structure about the magnetic field of the Milky Way. And in fact, I have colleagues who wrote to me just yesterday to try and do that yet again with even more data that's available. So I ended up also looking at the magnetic field of the Milky Way, and I still do that from time to time. So my PhD has really set my research focus for the rest of my career. So I'm still looking at magnetism. I'm still looking at magnetic fields and galaxy clusters. I'm still looking at radio relics and halos. So the halo is a region of diffuse radio emission at the center of the cluster and interesting things associated with that as I've expanded my career. So that's sort of what I learnt on the scientific side, if you like. Fantastic. That's astonishing. Just, just beautiful stuff. Now, look, this is what I'd call a supplementary question. You said galaxy clusters smash into each other, and the layperson might have an idea of something smashing together a bit like a, a train wreck. But I imagine when galaxy clusters smash into each other, it might take a bit more time than that. Yeah, it's a slow process. The universe is pretty slow. So <laughs> we, see, <laughs> we see these galaxy cluster mergers over the course of a couple of billion years, a few billion years. So, yeah, it's, it's a relatively slow process. So you can see the sort of groups of galaxies come together, the two original centres pass each other and then are drawn back by gravity and so you get this sort of sloshing effect. So yeah, that takes a few billion years depending on how large they are and, and things like that. So okay. yeah, it's like, like, like seeing a train wreck in slow-mo, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, look, looking at your career, after your PhD, you've had an amazing career path, a research fellow at Leiden University, University Lecturer, Chair of New Zealand's SKAR and D Consortium, Visiting Prof at the University of Bologna, Board Member of the SKA Science Data Process Consortium, Director and Leader of Astronomy and Astrophysics and Radio Astronomy Group at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, Founding Member of the SKA Organisation, currently you're a Research Professor at Curtin University in WA, a visiting professor at the University of Malaya and director now of the Murchison Widefield Array. Could you outline the scope of your current role leading the MWA? 
Yeah, so what I do at the moment is I run the MWA as a telescope facility for astronomers around the world. So the MWA is one of the four precursor telescopes to the Square Kilometre Array. It's a, a low-frequency radio telescope located in the Murchison region of Western Australia, which is on the future SKA site that CSIRO has been developing for more than a decade now. Yep. And it's actually a project which is run by Curtin University on behalf of currently 20 research organisations around the world. So our research institutions come from Australia, China, Japan, the US and Canada at the moment, but we've previously had involvement from New Zealand and India. Yep. And my job as director is really to make sure that the telescope runs, that people can apply for time on the telescope, that that time is assessed, that it's then awarded, that data comes down from the telescope into the Pawsey Supercomputing Centre and then gets distributed to people and all of the associated bits and pieces that go with that. So I am really just running a, a very talented team of uh, engineers and computer programmers, really, that actually make all that happen. My job is to just do the, the management and the organisation and to report to the board of directors on how we're going and what our future upgrade plans are and find money to keep running the telescope. So I spend a lot of time talking to our funding agencies and, and writing proposals. So that's, that's really what a telescope director does. So yep. you set, you know, it's like being director of anything. You sort of set a strategic vision and you make sure that there's funding and you make sure that things keep operating and, and doing what needs to be done and assess the risks and all that sort of stuff, deal with project management, all sorts of stuff, but in an astronomical context in this particular case. It sounds like you've got the management and science uh, well in place there, so thanks for that. Now, in past episodes, Stephen Tingay and Natasha Hurley-Walker have introduced us to the MWA and the early science and GLEAM. What's the current state of play for the MWA's instrument infrastructure and what's the range of researchers and range of research coming out from the MWA as we speak? Yeah, so the MWA is an interesting instrument. It's been upgraded already from the initial array, which was 2,048 dipoles in, in the desert in Western Australia. So we take our dipoles and we put them in groups of, of 16. So originally we had 128 of those spread out over just about three kilometres. And we upgraded it in 2017 to double the number of antennas. So we now have 4,096, yep. and they're spread out over just over five kilometres, so 5.3 kilometres. So we increased the, the array in terms of the, the number of antennas and then the distribution over which they're scattered, which that distance from the two furthest antennas gives us our resolution. So it goes inversely as the distance. So the further away they are, the greater resolution you have. And so we've doubled the resolution of the telescope as compared to the GLEAM survey which you'd previously heard about. So what we're doing at the moment is we're redoing surveys like that with higher resolution, so a factor of two increase in the resolution. And we're also conducting a range of other science projects. So the MWA actually has an incredibly diverse set of science that it can explore. And we've got five science teams in the MWA collaboration. There's about 270 researchers involved 
um, in the collaboration in total. And so those five sort of science teams that we have cover everything from looking at the sun and the ionosphere, the Gleam survey, which of course was a, a survey of the, the sky, which we did at 20 different radio colours, if you like. So the first Gleam survey spanned almost the full frequency coverage of the MWA. So we went from 70 megahertz up to 230 megahertz. The telescope actually goes up to 300, but the top end of the band has not as much sensitivity and some satellite interference. So you're better off sort of staying in that lower chunk. And we split that up into 20 subbands, but we're doing that again at twice the resolution. And so that's the thing where you can look for supernova remnants or you can look for diffuse emission in galaxy clusters like I do with my students or the cosmic web. We've also got a very active pulsar team doing high time resolution observations with the MWA, looking at low frequency observations of pulsars. There's a bunch of instrumentation work being done on the telescope. So it's, it's really, really, really very diverse. And one of the things that we're hoping to do in the near future is upgrade the instrument again and improve the, the correlator, which is the supercomputer on site that actually takes the signals from all the antennas and cross-correlates them and compares them before we send it down to Pawsey in Perth for imaging and other processing. And so the correlator that we have on site was actually purchased by me when I was in New Zealand in yep. 2012. And it was part of New Zealand's entry into the MWA project. And it's done a fantastic job. It's an IBM iDataplex. It's been in the field since January 2012 and it's still going, but it's now no longer state-of-the-art and not really large enough to ingest the data from all of the antennas that we've got on site and so one of the things we're trying to do is upgrade that instrument and put in a new correlator so that we can actually correlate all of the signals at once because what we do at the moment is we split the array into two halves and do different types of science with the two different halves of the array so what we call the compact array which is the sort of antennas in the center of the telescope we're trying to detect the epoch of reionization and I'm really proud to say that the MWA has now got the three lowest limits on the detection of the epoch of reionization of all of the radio telescopes in the world that are racing to try and detect it. So the epoch of reionization is the period in the history of the universe when the first stars and galaxies formed. And you can detect that at low radio frequencies with a particular global signal. And so there's a race on between many different telescopes to try and detect that so the MWA has the the three lowest limits which is very cool and that's what we use with the compact array and then with the extended array we do all the imaging and stuff that I've just talked about so instruments like the MWA are good because they're modular and you can continue to evolve them as funding and opportunities arise and so one of my jobs also as director is to try and shepherd that process and look for funding but also work out what it is that we're going to do when we get it and how we can best upgrade the telescope so at the moment we're writing a document for the board of directors on what the next steps are for that. So that's where we're at with the instrumentation. Fantastic. That's very exciting. Now, is it a good time now to mention the impact of COVID-19 on the work of BMWA and on the development of the SKO? Yeah, well, that's what I've been doing for the last two weeks is doing a business continuity planning exercise with my staff to work out how we're going to continue to run the MWA and transition all of my staff to working from home. So normally the MWA is run from an operations center in Perth yep. and 
all of the teams sit in the same office and you've got all the monitors and everything monitoring the telescope. We do all the scheduling from there. I mean, obviously when you have to repair the array, we go up onto the site, but most of the work is done down here in Perth. And because of the global pandemic, we've had to move most of the people from that team to work from home. So we've had to transition from a working environment where I could walk into the office and say, hey guys, I need you to do this, or what's the answer to that, to being wholly online and doing everything via Slack and instant messaging. And I've had a ridiculous number of Zoom video conferences, but I've been very lucky because my team is very organized and extremely good and they did this with minimal fuss. And so the MWA has actually just gone through a reconfiguration. We were really lucky to configure it into the, the long baseline array just before CSIRO enacted site restrictions and also before the sort of restrictions on movements within the state were enacted in Western Australia. And so we were very lucky in the timing. And so we're going to start our new observing semester next week. And we think subject to no faults uh, or any issues with the Pawsey supercomputer, which is center, which is where we ingest our data that we should be able to observe as normal. So it's been an interesting exercise. It shows you where there's contingencies and where there's dependencies on your operation, which you're not in control of. And all you can do is sort of put in mitigation processes to deal with those as best you can. So yeah, we've been doing that. So it's been really interesting. And we've, I think, got into a pretty good state now with MWA. So we're going to observe as normal, hopefully until the end of the year. As I said, fingers crossed that there's no lightning strikes or other, other faults on the site. For the SKAI, I think that the impact of COVID-19 is still being determined because, of course, the SKA as a project is still before construction. And so it involves a lot of countries around the world, some of which are very badly affected by COVID-19, like Italy. And so there's discussions underway at the moment as to how that will play out in terms of the SKA timelines. Yeah. So we'll have to wait and see. Understandable. Thank you. Now, speaking of the SKA, we haven't had an update on the progress for a while. Could you tell us a bit about the state of play for both Australia and South Africa? You mentioned four science instruments and the MWA is one of them. And I've heard of the Meerkat array, of course. How's it all going and what's the current timeline and what can we expect forgetting about COVID-19 for the moment, what could we expect over the next couple of years? Yeah, so the precursor projects are mostly separately run. So these are four instruments which provide uh, scientific, technical and operational input into the SKA. And so MWA is one of those telescopes. So MWA is run completely independently of SKA. And so we are decoupled in a sense. So we're just going to continue doing what we're doing until such times as SKA Low is constructed on the site in Australia and, and surpasses us. Meerkat is a little bit different because Meerkat is the telescope in South Africa that is up and running now and producing beautiful images of the sky, absolutely stunning images of the sky. And there's 64 dishes in Meerkat. They're going to get an upgrade with input from Germany for I think another 20 dishes and then eventually that will become SKA mid so then there'll be another set of dishes added to that so Meerkat is really the start of SKA mid so that's actually up and running now and then the SKA mid antennas will be added to it and then the other 
precursor telescopes are ASCAP, which is the 36 element dish array here in Australia, which is operated by CSIRO and ASCAP is now taking early science data. So that's going really well. A lot of beautiful images coming out of ASCAP as well. And the other one's HERA, which is a low frequency project on the site in South Africa. And that's still being developed and commissioned. So the SK itself is in a pretty good state. They've recently passed their critical design review. And so in theory are now poised for construction. So we're still in what's called bridging from pre-construction. But the board recently approved a plan to build the full scope of the telescope as originally envisaged. Cool. Um, so that's, yeah, well, we'll see if they get the money. Um, so that's 130,000 antennas on the site in Australia and of the order of 200 antennas in the site in South Africa in phase one. So that's the Meerkat telescope plus additional antennas. And in principle, construction is supposed to happen in the next sort of 18 months, let's say. And in parallel to that, they've been working very hard to establish the governance mechanisms for the telescope. So the way that we started the project was that we set up the SK organisation, which is headquartered in Jodrell Bank in the UK. And that's actually at the moment accompanied by a limited guarantee where the member countries of the SK organisation are basically owners of the company. And so that was the, the project that I was a founding board member of. So I was a, a member of the board of directors of, of that company. And I did that for six or seven years. What they're going to do in the future is move to a government level treaty organisation And there's a whole bunch of reasons, pragmatic reasons why that's good. And so they're currently in the process of ratifying the treaty paperwork that lets them do that, which will then let them establish the observatory as an intergovernmental organisation. And that should happen relatively quickly. So um, that process is going quite well at the moment. So a number of countries have signed up already and gone through their government paperwork for that. So that's, that's really where the project's at. So there's two parts of it. There's getting all of the governance and structure and process in place And then there's the process of actually constructing and building the telescope once you've got your design. So hopefully things will start to really pick up in that space over the next 18 months to two years. But who knows what COVID-19 and other world events will do to that timeline. So that's where we're at, as far as I know. I should say, I'm no longer on the board of directors. When I was headhunted to come and do the MWA and be director of the MWA, I resigned my position on most of the SKA governance bodies so i have not first-hand information as i would have done previously if i could put it that way yeah still it sounds like an optimistic future thank you now uh, you mentioned your correlator earlier and you've got all that computing facility down at the pausey center let's have a quick look at the big data issue where these powerful instruments and amazing facilities eat pipelines for breakfast and in our last episode we talked with ASCAP science head, Dr. Vanessa Moss, and she told us about the AI and the data visualization and even the possibility of virtual reality that could develop into go-to solutions for dealing with these petabytes of data on a daily basis. Is there such a thing as too much data? And is there the potential for AI to throw the baby out with the bathwater? I mean, yeah, there's too much data in the sense that we've got too much data for people to look at now without developing automatic 
processes to extract knowledge from it. So I think the misconception that people make most of the time is that data equals knowledge. This is not true. Data is useless to you unless you can actually curate it and understand it and extract information from it. And I think people misunderstand that constantly. And this thing about AI and the potential of AI to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that's a really interesting question because that's a question of fear and timescales. So one of the pushbacks that we get when talking about coming up with automatic ways for extracting information from astronomers is exactly this, which is, oh no, we can't do that because we will miss something. Yep. Well, if you've got so much data, you can't sift through it, you're missing something anyway. And so that's a human problem rather than I think an AI problem. So with astronomy, we have the luxury of dealing with timescales, which are very long in many cases. And so in some cases, it's easier to run your AI and actually get some information and then throw away your data and then improve that process and reobserve because the universe is changing relatively slowly. For things that are happening quite fast, like if you're worried about the new field of radio transients, yep. um, then yes, you've got the potential to miss things. But again, as I said, if you're drowning in buckets of data that you can't actually get through, you're missing those things anyway. So I think people need to be a bit more pragmatic about these issues. We are generating huge amounts of data. Most of it's going untouched at the moment. And so we do need to move into a regime where we can get to science faster. We need to be able to process that and extract knowledge out of those data faster. So I'm all for automatic processes. I'm all for reducing the amount of empty voxels that we're keeping in storage just in case and moving forward with actual science. Again, one of the interesting sociological things which has changed in the last 20 years is where the costs are associated with research data storage and collection. So when I was a graduate student working with Ron Eakers, one of the first things that Ron said to me is, make sure that you get your observation coordinates right because observing on the telescope is very expensive. Running the telescope is extremely expensive. Saving the data and putting it in the archive for future use was relatively cheap compared to the operations of the instrument. Yep. And so that was what was drilled into me as a student. Now, with the huge amount of data that we have, that's not true. Reobserving is cheaper than keeping your empty voxels in storage in perpetuity. So you can flip that and think of the sky as being your archive for objects for which they're not changing on very rapid timescales. And this is a really different way of thinking about doing science and where the costs are. And if you're not actually involved in costing things or working out how to get the money for them, I guess you don't have to think about that. And you've had it drilled into you that, you know, the telescope observing is, is sacred and all data must be kept. And so it's a human problem. And so when I talk to people about this, you get this instant, oh no, we've got to keep every every piece of data we ever collected. Well, we can't afford that. So you have to try and get people to flip the scripts in their heads. So yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. I like talking about that. That's one of my, one of my sort of pet topics, actually. It's good fun. Fantastic. So we'll see how fun <laughs> <laughs> Your students are so lucky. That's fantastic to just hear you explain things with such clarity. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about your own research. And I had a look at a recent November 2019 paper you worked on where you found supernova remnants using the GLEAM survey. Would you like to tell us about this or perhaps even talk about what's your most puzzling or challenging and most enjoyable research that you're doing and what you hope to achieve with one of the projects you're currently working on? Yeah, so I'll tell you about supernova remnants. So those papers were led by um, Natasha Hurley-Walker, but I'm also, she did one half the galactic plane. I'm leading the paper on the other half of the galactic plane to look for supernova remnants, which I haven't published yet, but I've got to get on to. But yeah, one of the cool <laughs> things about the MWA is that because we've got this wide frequency coverage, you can find objects by looking at their spectral properties over the frequency range of the MWA. So you can make false colored images which clearly show you supernova remnants in one color versus other things that look like them morphologically, like hydrogen gas regions. So you can just look at the colors and go, oh no, actually, that's an H2 region. That's not a supernova remnant or whatever. So that's the sort of the advantage of using the MWA. And so with MWA, we found a whole bunch of new supernova remnants that were previously missed or misclassified. And so one of the science questions that we have around supernova remnants is, where are they all? Because we only see about 300 and we know from stellar life cycle modeling and from the stars that we can see in the Milky Way that there should be over a thousand. So there's a whole bunch of supernova remnants which are missing in the current literature. And these are either ones which are very old and very large and faint and hard to see, which are good candidates for the MWA, or extremely young and small, which are not so good candidates for the NWA because we don't have the resolution to find those. So we're sort of filling in this space of missing supernova remnants with instruments like the MWA. So that's that's good fun. And as for challenging things that I'm, I'm working on at the moment, I think the most challenging thing that we're working on is trying to detect the cosmic web, which is a project that I'm working on with one of my PhD students, Torrance. And what we're trying to do there is find the diffuse filamentary low surface brightness radio emission that we should see as part of the cosmic web so the web-like structure of galaxies that you would see if you could you know take a so-called god's eye view and step out of out of the universe and look in on it look like a sort of a chaotic spider web and you should be able to see that at very low radio frequencies as a very faint web-like structure now this is a really hard thing to do and what we've concluded is we probably can't do it but it's been a really interesting process to to work with Torrance and my collaborators on modeling what that looks like how faint it would be uh, seeing what the effects of our instrumental li limitations are on detecting that and then try to actually detect it with with the MWA in the current phase of the array as opposed to the previous phase of the array and how that then informs how we should upgrade the telescope to do a better job. So that's probably the most interesting science project that I'm working on at the moment, but I get to work on a range of things, so it's kind of fun. Lots of them are fun, individually. <laughs> and I think your self-described stubbornness might help you in that project as well. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta be tenacious. That's what I keep telling Torrance. <laughs> Every time he, he comes back and says, you know, here's what the simulations say, and we're probably not going to be able to do it. I say, oh, that's all right, because that's an interesting result in and of itself. I mean, sometimes a, a result that says you can't do something is just as interesting as one that says that you can, because then you can say, right, well, how do we improve the instrument to be able to do it? So, yeah, yeah. it's good to be stuff. Then there's the serendipitous discoveries that come out of left field. But 
let's have a look at another paper. In February this year, you were one of the lead authors in a paper in the Astrophysical Journal, Discovery of a Giant Radio Fossil in the Opiacus Galaxy Cluster, where you used the MWA data to see the most powerful black hole eruption ever seen in the universe. And this caused quite a stir all around the interwebs. Can you tell us about the fallout from this paper, please, Melanie? Uh, yeah, well, the fallout from that paper was that I spent the entire weekend doing interviews for the <laughs> press release came out. <laughs> and it got picked up by 1,500 media outlets around the world. So that story got an enormous amount of traction. So our media trackers tell us that it had a global potential audience of 2.6 billion people. So that was kind of nice. It was good PR for the MWA. So this is a really interesting project led by collaborator Simona in the States. And what we were doing was we were looking at a bunch of galaxy clusters with my students and research assistants um, with the Gleam survey. And we were looking for diffuse radio emission in galaxy clusters and looking at the spectral properties of that. So how bright this diffuse stuff is as a function of the frequency frequencies that we look at with the MWA. And we found this object, which was extremely what we call steep spectrum, which means that it, the intensity changes rather rapidly across the MWA band. Yep. And that was, you know, sort of a blobby radio source in the Fucus Galaxy Cluster with the resolution that we had with the Phase 1 MWA. And Simona was very interested in this same object because she was looking at where such a mission comes from and she had observations with the GMRT radio telescope in India. And Maxim, who is the second author of the paper, is an X-ray astronomer. We all work on galaxy clusters. And he had reprocessed the Chandra X-ray data and seen there was this huge cavity in the X-ray data which lined up with the radio. And so that's actually the signature of the cavity in the X-ray being excavated by energetic outbursts from an active galactic nuclei, so AGN, in the centre of the galaxy cluster. Yep. And a previous tech had, had looked at this cluster and said, oh no, it can't be that, because they'd looked with older radio telescopes and not seen any radio emission filling the cavity. And so with the MWA and then the reprocessed GMRT data that Simona took and out of the archive and then reanalyzed we could actually see that the cavity was filled with radio emission, which is this characteristic signature. And so we were able to confirm that this was, in fact, an AGN that had spewed out enormous amounts of energy into the ambient cluster medium and blown this sort of enormous cavity, this huge bubble, which is about 15 times the, the size of the Milky Way and was five times more energetic than the previous record holder for such an AGN outburst. And so that was actually a really nice piece of research. So it sort of characterizes a whole bunch of interesting things, I think, in astronomy. So one, you need to have observations of objects across the electromagnetic spectrum to really understand what's going on. So the previous X-ray work was not enough. You needed to have X-ray and radio. Yep. Two, you need to have the right radio. So in this case, we need to have low frequency radio observations because these plasmas are old and they have stopped emitting at higher frequencies and so are literally invisible to telescopes like the, the VLA and things at higher frequencies. Yeah. And three, you need an international team with people with expertise in different areas to actually be able to 
extract all the data and turn it into knowledge. And so uh, this is a really neat project, not just for the results, but that it perfectly showcases the best of, of astrophysics in the current era. So it's cool. It's very cool. Fantastic. Okay, well, thanks for that. Now, the mic is all yours, Melanie, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or career paths or equity or our collective or individual quest for new knowledge. The mic's all yours. Yeah, that's dangerous. I've got lots of rants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, people who know me well um, know they have fairly strong opinions on most things. I think the thing that people need to keep in mind is that science is done by humans yeah. And humans are, even as scientists, not as mentally flexible or immune to their training as, as you might think. So coming back to my point about the AI thing, right? So if you're trained in a, a certain way, to think in a certain way, it's hard to remove that context, if you like, or framing and try and look at new problems differently. So this is exactly the, the issue of me saying to people, hey, let's just use the sky as an archive. Let's realise that for a particular class of science, we're looking at things which are on lifetimes of tens of years, so it doesn't matter if we throw those data out and reobserve. Yep. That's, that's an anathema to the, the framing that people have had in their training. And so what I'm really sort of interested in beyond the actual science itself right now is deconstructing that sort of issue and kind of step, trying to step back and look at something afresh without the, the sort of restrictions of my own training, which of course I, I have like everybody else. And so I think that's probably the rant that I would give to people about one of the challenges of science. So this is a challenge which I think people don't really expect. People talk to you about, oh, it's difficult to find funding, which is true. And it's difficult to extract the knowledge at the rate that we need to and so forth. But a lot of these things are actually underpinned by more fundamental limitations due to framing. And so I'm very big on trying to understand what the frame is, who set it up, and is it actually valid? And this kind of comes back to one of the other pieces of advice that I give to people when they ask me about careers, which is I often say to people that I live by two rules, if you like, although rules isn't quite the right word. So um, the first one is fail quickly. So I don't think people should pursue things which are not actually working. I think people should test things quickly and move on without investing too much again, because humans aren't very good at sunk costs. So humans sort of go, oh, I've invested in this, even though it's terrible, I'll keep investing here. Yep. And, and the other thing is, I don't think in most cases the rules apply. And by what I mean there is, it's again, it's about framing. So people will tell you what your options are. They will tell you, where your career path is, how you can go in a certain direction. And that is often limited by a frame and a context that they've set. And it's not always right. It's not always the totality of options that you have. And so I spent a lot of time kind of going, well, no, that doesn't seem right. I'm, I'm going to go and do this. And people say, we well, can't do that. And I'll say, well, why not? It's not illegal. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> so... <laughs> And this throws people for a loop, like it really does. It freaks people out. But I think it's important for people to realise that. So to sort of, in anything, and I don't, I don't care if you're doing astrophysics or science or um, anything else, 
you know, these frames that people set up for other people and how society works and so forth are important to keep social cohesion, but they're not always that important that you can't break them. So that's really my, my biggest rant. That's probably the, the most profound thing that I've learnt in my career, actually. And so I try and find opportunities that other people miss because I'm just like, well, that's not actually right. I can do this or I have the opportunity to do something else. And so throughout my career, I've done that. It's been really interesting. Uh, so when I went to New Zealand, as an example, my partner had moved to New Zealand as an academic. And so he was living there already and I was an academic in Australia still. And you know, it's hard to get academic jobs at the right level doing the right thing. And the university that he worked for advertised for a, a nanotechnologist because they had a material science institute. And I wrote to them and said, you know, you don't want one of those people. you got lots of them. What yep. you want is an astrophysicist, and particularly a radio astronomer, because there's this thing called the Square Kilometre Array. And I think New Zealand has a really unique opportunity to get involved in that. And so if you give me this job instead, and it was, I was going from a permanent, essentially tenured job in Australia, I was applying for a job which was only three years contract in New Zealand. But I said, if you do this and you give me this job in the first three years, this is the set of things that I'll do. And this is the opportunity that I'll leverage. And if I do all those things, I think you should then give me a permanent job. And I was lucky in that particular case because the person who was running the selection process was a, a guy called Sir Paul Callahan, who was a very eminent New Zealand physicist yep. and Paul liked people who did that sort of stuff. And so he said, yeah, all right. And so they gave me the job. So they didn't hire a, a nanotechnologist. They hired me and I went there and I did the things that I'd say that I would do. And New Zealand got to the SKA and all those sort of things. And I think most people wouldn't have done that. Most people would have gone, Oh, that's not a job I could apply for. So those are the sort of things I think people should look at and say, well, well, what really are the opportunities? Where is the limitation? And then explore the boundaries beyond that. So there you go. That's my rant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Melanie. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Coronavirus at the moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess it depends on, on what you mean. Uh, I'm still interested in seeing how in astronomy we can work better with other disciplines to advance knowledge creation faster. So I'm really interested to see how, uh, for example, the partnership between Google and the LSST is going to work in terms of knowledge extraction. I think that's a really interesting space. I'm interested in seeing how, things like the Breakthrough Listen project, which is founded by Yuri Milner yep. to look for um, extraterrestrial intelligence, actually works as a, a funding mechanism for science. So science, of course, is traditionally funded primarily for governments, which comes with, again, a particular set of requirements and limitations. But if you can start moving into funding from corporations or private citizens or even through crowdfunding, that changes the scope and responsibility, if you like, for science. And I think that's a really interesting space. So I'm sort of interested in that. But you can see that this is obviously my bias from my background in, in running telescopes and international projects and stuff. I think in terms of science, any new instrument that comes out is worth watching because anytime we get a new instrument or we upgrade an instrument, we then push into a new parameter space for discovery. 
And so every time something new comes out, I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm particularly excited about Irizita, which is an X-ray telescope project that's going to be amazing for galaxy clusters, which is, of course, my field. Very excited about upgrades to new and existing instruments. So I'm excited about the Meerkat surveys. I'm excited about data from, from ASCAP and the MWA and how we can compare these things together. But yeah, anytime there's a, a new instrument, I think that's worth, worth looking at. So I guess those are the tips that I would give people the hot tips. There you go. <laughs> Very good. We often refer to it here as the golden age for astrophysics that we're living in. Well, Thank you so much, Professor Melanie Johnston-Hollett. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thanks for being so generous with your time here today with us. No worries. My absolute pleasure. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to speak to you and to have your listeners hear my rants. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Lovely to speak with you. Um, Absolutely. I've been sitting here with a smile on my face for over an hour now. Good on you. Ah, thanks a lot. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Okay, bye now. Thank you, Brendan. Bye. And don't forget to get the latest space news from Rami Mandal on his fabulous spaceaustralia.com website. And another great astro podcast to catch is The Scientists with Dr. Ankel Sanchez-Lopez and PhD candidate Kirsten Banks. In our next interview-only episode, we speak with Clint Jeffrey, an amateur radio astronomer who works on the technologies for an 8.5-metre dish constructed by the Radio Astronomy Section of the Astronomical Society of Victoria in Australia. The dish is located in a quiet zone in a rural area about 130 kilometres north of Melbourne, and they've just achieved first light, with a successful observation of the redshift of a small Magellanic cloud and galactic hydrogen inside the Milky Way. You'll love it. You'll hear this in two weeks. Till then, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. Radio